I'm Fayette Fox, and today you'll hear my story on San Francisco people. Welcome to San Francisco people. I'm Frank Garza, and today's guest is Fayette Fox. Uh, Now, Fayette just published her first novel, and it's called The Deception Artist. And The Deception Artist is a story told from the perspective of an eight-year-old girl named Ivy. And Ivy has a really vivid imagination, and she tells lies so that people will like her. And she's telling the story of her quote-unquote ordinary family um, and their life in the Bay Area during the 1980s recession. And uh, her family is like many ordinary families. Uh, They have some problems. Uh, Her brother's in the hospital. Her dad loses his job. And things just start to come a bit unraveled at home. And Ivy's there to tell us the story step by step uh, the whole way through. Now, the novel was originally published in the UK by Myriad Editions in 2013. And it got some really great reviews. I want to read a few of those to you. Uh, The Independent wrote, Fayette Fox's first novel is a quirky, charming debut, and Ivy's perspective is beautifully captured. We love this book, wrote, a captivating debut, and hopefully the first of many books from Fayette Fox. And this, this is my favorite one right here, The Book Hugger. They wrote, Ivy is one of the most beautifully sweet and intelligent children I've had the pleasure of reading. I definitely would have been friends with her if she'd gone to my school. I found Fayette Fox's writing delicious to read. Delicious. That's a good one. Fayette Fayette told me that she thinks that's probably because she talked about food so much uh, in her book. Um, So it was published in the UK in 2013, and it was just published in the US by Roaring Forties Press on March 17th. So it is fresh out there on the bookshelves for you guys to go read. So we're going to talk about Fayette's journey today. Uh, we're going to talk about what ultimately led to her writing this book and getting it published. Um, she's from the Bay Area. Uh, she went to college on the East Coast. Uh, she lived in London for a while, um, where she worked for Lonely Planet, uh, commissioning guidebooks to places all over the world. And Fayette, she's traveled all over the world herself. Uh, she's traveled really very extensively. And that's actually where we cut into the inter- in, into the interview. Um, it's as she's telling some of her favorite stories uh, from her journeys around the world. Uh, after that, we'll dive into her book. And then, of course, she'll share some of her favorite spots throughout the Bay Area. She lives in Oakland now. Uh, but before that, she lived in the Lower Haight. Uh, so she'll share some of her favorite spots uh, from her old hood um, and throughout San Francisco. So let's go talk to Fayette. You were attacked by a giant centipede. <laughs> where, where was it that was at? Awful. And please tell me that story. <laughs> so awful. So it was in Japan, and it was it was seriously like it was like a foot long. Okay, so a foot long centipede. Foot long centipede. It was probably like two inches thick. Okay. And I've always been a little creeped out by centipedes. Okay. I like bugs. Like I think bugs are really interesting. But centipedes are one of those few insects that just really skews me out. And this is the biggest one I'd ever seen. <laughs> and it it was in my pants. 
It was in your pants. Yes. I was camping on this island off the coast of Tokyo. And and it was beautiful. There was um, was like kind of tropical waters. And it was actually free to camp there. And Japan's so expensive. It's really incredible that anything is free. But yeah, you could stay at this campsite. It was on this really steep steep hill. And um, I think my... I was traveling with my my British partner at the time, and I think we were the only only Westerners that I remember on the island. And anyway, so I guess I um they've got a I think they've got a problem with jellyfish, and so I was swimming. <laughs> all these things that can sting you. I was I'd been swimming or snorkeling earlier in the day with my clothes on to protect against things that might bite me in the water and then I had hung my um I had these like special thin quick drying travel pants and so I had hung them up on this bush to dry and was um I guess wearing my bathing suit and so finally my pants had dried I'm like great I only had probably two pairs of pants so I put them back on and I only got them part way at my legs because I felt this really intense jabbing pain in my knee and it basically felt like somebody had uh, shoved a safety pin into my knee just like bam and so I, I immediately pulled the pants off before I'd even knew what I was doing and then I saw the biggest centipede ever slithering away and <laughs> and it started my knee started swelling up and it just it the pain was just incredible and not were, you, speaking, were you going nuts? Like well, screaming? I was. I was worried that it might kill me because, <laughs> for all I knew, it was poisonous. <laughs> I mean, it was obviously a little bit poisonous as I was having this this uh, really intense, you know, allergic reaction where it was my whole knee was swelling up. But yeah, I didn't quite have the uh, the language skills at all to be able to ask someone, "Hey." So if there's if I got bitten by this giant centipede, should I be worried? Um, you didn't know how to say in Japanese, <laughs> "Hey, this one foot long centipede bit me and then ran away. Am I gonna die?" <laughs> eh, that that was that was way more advanced than my uh, my um, my simple niceties in Japanese. Fortunately, this island had a public library where you could get on the internet, and so I. Uh, we'd rent these bikes. Like I biked to the library and Googled it. And sure enough, there's, there's all these, these foreigners living in Japan who were talking about being bitten by these giant centipedes. And it was kind of a rite of passage actually. And they're like, yeah, been in Japan five years, been bitten twice. Nice. And they're, they're kind of proud of it. They're like, yeah, hurts like hell. <laughs> it's okay. It won't kill you. <laughs> well, I'm happy that you survived. Interesting. (laughs) (laughs) No one's asked me that story for a long time, even though I've got that on the website. Really? Yeah. That's like, I mean, there's a lot of good stuff on your website, but that to me is the one that really pops off the page. Right. (laughs) That's what I thought. But no, it's apparently maybe I imagine people are too terrified to ask. They're like, I don't want to know the details. It'll give me nightmares. Right. I don't want to know. So you're you're doing this traveling. You said one year, right, around mm-hmm. Asia. When I, I guess so, what's going on with your book? 
and what what impact did this trip have on your book in terms of motivating you to write it so i guess that it had two there's two um two ways in which that trip influenced the book so i i started writing the novel the year before i went to asia my last year in london and made a very conscious effort just to put the novel on the back burner. Um, and, and I guess I, I had every faith that I would come back to it at the end of that time. So I had this um, real deal mountaintop epiphany in Nepal. So I, was, I spent three weeks trekking in the Nepalese Himalayas which was the other thing I love about Nepal besides it just feeling just really friendly and wonderful being there. So I was hiking in the Himalayas and I had recently turned 29 and I guess I was doing a lot of soul searching. Um, about a month earlier, the, the British boyfriend and I had broken up though we we're unfortunately still continuing to travel together. Just wow. a terrible idea. <laughs> it's hard to let go, I guess. So that was hard. But hiking and doing a lot of soul searching about what did I want to do next once this trip was over? Where did I want to live? What what did I want to accomplish before I turned 30? And throughout my 20s, I'd always... Um, Throughout, throughout my whole life up to that point, I'd always had a lot of creative interests and had been pretty scattered creatively. Loved visual art, loved acting, um, used to host these crafternoons where I'd get together with my friends, we'd make stuff, really into cooking and just all these different things. And I loved it, but as a result, I never made much progress with any of them. So up on this mountaintop, I suddenly realized I need to pick one of these things and focus on it for a year and just see what I can accomplish. I might as well pick writing because I've put a year into this novel already. So yeah, I'll just finish up the novel in a couple of months and I'll do some other writing projects with the rest of the year. So how long can it take to finish a novel? I mean, come on. And, <laughs> um, and I don't have to say goodbye to my visual art and the performing and all those other things forever because how could I possibly do that? I'll just put them on hold for a year and I'll come back to them. And, and that's what I did. And I think because I had that, that realization, that decision to be a little bit more focused for once in my life, I was able to really move forward in a productive way with the novel. And you've talked about some of your struggles writing it. I mean, you know, it took five years, right? That's a long time. It's a long time. Um, but it sounds like you had to make a lot of sacrifices. I mean, in that five-year period as well. I mean, you told me even at one point you were you were working at a bagel shop. Yep, I was I just was, to make ends meet. Right? Can you talk about some of the sacrifices you had yeah. to make in that five years? So for for everyone who has a serious full-time job and some creative passion, they know how hard it is to juggle those two aspects of, 
of their lives. And, and plus you've got, you know, friends and family and, and just everything else. It's hard. And Lonely Planet was amazing, but very demanding. And it was really hard for me to have much time. It's, it's not the time. It's, I mean, we, we all make time for the things we want to do. It's having sort of the, the creative energy to actually, and the discipline to actually use that precious after work time to pursue that creative interest. And writing's hard. <laughs> yeah. You got to really have the hard. energy. I mean, yeah, yeah. You can't be so, you can't like sit down after a hard day's work when you're dead tired. Right. It's the last thing you want to do. Chapters, I'm sure. It's yeah. awful. And, and people do and all the more power to them because that is hard. Um, because I had so little discipline when I started working on the novel, I thought, okay, in order to focus on the novel, I'm just going to, I'm not going to do a full-time job. I'm just going to temp part-time and therefore I'll have plenty of creative energy on the novel because I'm going to be only working 20 hours a week and it's going to be filing and photocopying and stuff which is not at all taxing so I I moved to DC um after uh, after I came so I came back to the states after Asia moved to DC and um so it was 2009 and DC was doing a lot better than most of the country at that point but even so it was pretty hard to to find work and um and on top of that like I I really didn't want a full-time job and so I remember just signing up with more and more temp agencies I think I had seven in the end and I had a spreadsheet to keep track of it because some of them they all had different requests so one of them wanted to me to check in by phone every Friday afternoon another one wanted me to you know call daily or whatever it was just like ridiculous and Eventually, I was given longer term temp placements and was able to get into a really good groove with the novel. And I had a spreadsheet for that, too, which was <laughs> my way of staying accountable to myself, because I think before that time, I felt really guilty when I wasn't working on the novel. And I'm really social. And certainly that first year when I was working on my, my novel, when I was living in London, if a friend wanted to hang out and I had planned on working on my novel that evening, the friend would always win because writing a novel is hard <laughs> and hanging yeah. out with friends is fun. So that's where I was at. Once I moved back to the States and was determined to be really focused on the novel, if I had set aside time to work on the novel, then that's what I would do. And I'd keep track of my hours and my word count in this spreadsheet so that I could kind of set goals and think, okay, you know, I want to write for you know, this many hours a week. And I could see how I was tracking. And then I didn't feel guilty anymore, which is great. I'm all for finding techniques to avoid guilt because that's no fun. You know, it feels good to set goals and be able to measure success and to be successful and whatever that means to you. Um, and... I think for me, because of my personality, if, I, if I'm not clear on what I should be doing with a particular project, then 
there can be a lot of guilt around that. Oh, maybe I should be working on this. I don't know. So you, you finished the book. How did it get, talk about the process for how it got published and you know, how difficult that was and you know, what that experience was like. So I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to say that it was super easy to get it published, (laughs) which I just feel kind of bad because there's so many amazing authors out there who struggle so much to find the right publisher through no fault of their own. It's just, it's hard. It's really hard getting a book published. And for me, it was actually the easiest part of the process. Um, so when I, when I was in India, I was volunteering for this grassroots nonprofit called the Sambali Trust. And I was teaching Dalit teenage girls, uh, English and crafts. Um, so, um, Dalit is the untouchables cast. And the idea of the nonprofit was basically just to empower these girls and, ended up really bonding with the other volunteer teacher who is Australian and had been living in England as well before she went to um, India. And so we, I feel like we had a lot in common and uh, we ended up devising these multi-day workshops on um, nutrition and exercise and sex ed and totally blew the minds of these these teenage girls who just had no idea about any of these things. And it was... It was super cool. It was one of the, the best things I'd ever done up until that point. So, um, this guy named Ben was, he was this British guy. He was friends with Meg, the other teacher. And he came to visit her in India. And Ben was great. We totally hit it off. We all traveled together. And at some point, I must have told Ben about my novel. I don't remember this, but I told everybody about my novel in those days. <laughs> and um, so fast forward several years, Ben and I, you know, we're still in touch. We're friends. Um, on the, the occasions I went back to England, I would always, you know, stay with him when I went down to Brighton. And he had gotten an internship at one point, this two-month internship for this wonderful independent publisher in Brighton called Marriott Editions. And on his last day at the, um, in the internship, unbeknownst to me, he pitched my novel to the fiction editor. And that's a good friend. Yeah. He had never read the book. Mm. Um, he just, you know, he liked me. He liked the sound of the book and, uh, Vicki Blunden's the fiction editor. And she said, yeah, that sounds interesting. Have your friend send me the first 50 pages. And, so Ben passed this message on to me and six months later when I was finally at a point in the book where I was ready to um, start shopping around to agents, I um, reached out to uh, to Marriott Editions and, and it turned out to be the perfect fit for them, which was just the most amazing thing ever. Um, I'm, I'm so indebted to them for taking a risk on... Um, an unpublished author and to my friend Ben for um, helping to make that introduction. So I always envision an author who's about to, who's trying to publish their first book. I always envision this dramatic scene where they, 
they finally realize their book is about to be published. And they, they get a <laughs> phone call or whatever. Did you have a moment like that? I mean, or can you tell us the moment you really realized that your book was going to be published? Yeah, I. My lasting memory is this really intense morning sunlight. I was living in D.C. I was in the um, at my little kitchen table. Um, I was staying, living in this beautiful Art Deco apartment in um, Mount Pleasant for people that know D.C. and had these really big windows. Um, and I was sitting at my computer probably having breakfast before I went to work. I was working for this this nonprofit, um, as half the population of D.C. does. Anyway, so I was checking my email before work, and I got this email from from Vicki Blunden at Myriad Editions, and she said they wanted to publish the book. And I remember just feeling absolutely stunned and kind of this full body tingle and I thought wait a minute I must have this is too good to be true I must have misinterpreted the email I just need to calm myself down enough to reread it and really understand what it's saying because it (laughs) you know maybe maybe she doesn't mean they'll publish it publish it maybe just you know we're considering maybe publishing it maybe it's not a done deal let me let me reread it. And so, okay. And and meanwhile, there's just this incredible sunlight just pouring in through these big windows. And I reread the email, and I reread it, and I reread it. And finally, on the fifth reading, I was really convinced that they actually wanted to publish the book. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, it was just the most amazing feeling, you know, just this knowing that. This, this story that I'd spent five years of my life working on was going to get out there and be shared with the world. Well, I actually finished it last night. Yay! Nothing like pushing, <laughs> nothing like pushing it all the way to to the to the wire, huh? Um, but I, I loved it. Um, I thought it was a great book, and you know the main character Ivy, she's just an absolute delight um, that you just can't help but like really like. And the book reminded me a lot of this book prep I had read. And I've talked to a lot of people that have read prep. So if you've, if you've read prep, um, you'll like this book because prep is told from the perspective of a girl slightly older. Mm. Um, it's this 14 year old who goes to an East coast prep school and she basically tells her high school story. Um, but it kind of reminds me of that character, just this really delightful character that's out there. So I love it. I recommend it. It's great reviewed. So when does it get released in the U.S. or published in the U.S., I should say? Yeah, so um, it's getting published. So I guess it's it's out now, actually, um, in the U.S. Um, so it's kind of funny to have, I mean, just the story of, of how it was published, um, the India connection and uh, getting published in the U.K. initially. Um, and that whole story is all the stranger since... I'm, you know, a Bay Area author writing a book set in the Bay Area and that initially gets published in the UK. It's, it's kind of nuts. Um, so it's just been published by Roaring Forties Press, 
which is this um, wonderful independent publisher out of Berkeley. So they're local too. And I know that's part of what they really liked about, um, they love the novel, but also just, just this idea of kind of being the American publisher, but also being, being local and that it's a, you know, helping this Bay area story reach um, American readers. I want to ask you about um, what will define success for you with this book. Um, <laughs> is it is it number of book sales? Is it more great reviews? Um, or maybe you've already achieved success, you know, in, in your mind. What does success look like um, for the deception artist? That is such a good question. I don't have a spreadsheet for that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh. I, it's been shortlisted for two awards so far, um, to actually win, um, a literary award would be so amazing. I mean, that would be a really incredible recognition for the book. Um, but, um, so I think, I guess there's a lots of different, uh, there'd be a lot of different measures of success. So I think, I think that would be one measure of success, um, Oh, I would love, <laughs> this has never happened yet. I would love to just be writing Muni and see someone reading the book. <laughs> that would be the coolest thing ever. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, um, on episode one, I interviewed my good friend, Rob Hunter, and he writes iPhone apps for a living. And he wrote this hit tennis app that has 35 million downloads. And we were talking about it on the show. And he mentioned that, you know, still to this day, he's never been on the bus or anywhere random and like just happened to glance over at somebody's phone and like see them playing this game. And he would like love that as well. <laughs> um, so I, I definitely can see that. That would yeah, be awesome. It's, it's totally kind of like hearing your first thing. song on the radio or something like that. <laughs> yeah, that would be, that'd be fun. But yeah, I mean, I think, um, I don't want to place success outside of myself because it's those things are out of my control. You know, I can't make people on Muni read this book or I can't force the judges to choose it in competition. You know, it's um, so I guess in that way, um, I mean, those things would be amazing, but I don't, I don't want to define success based on, any of those things or achieving a certain number of book sales or whatever. Um, I mean, this is, this is a huge success to have, um, to have this book published in my own country and to have people in the Bay area be able to read this story and, um, yeah, people all over North America, actually it's, it's the North American publication. So Canada too. (laughs) Yeah, it feels really good. So for people who do read this book, um, what's the one thing you hope they take away from it? Oh gosh. Um, Or, you know, they, they finish the last page, they turn it over, they set it aside. What are you hoping they've experienced or taken away from it? I mean, I hope, I hope they felt a range of emotions. I mean, I think, I think the book is really hilarious in parts. I think it's also um, really touching and sad in other parts. 
Um, um, I mean, I guess I think one thing that I'd love people to take away is kind of dispelling the myth of childhood is this kind of carefree, happy-go-lucky time. Um, I think some people, some of us remember more of our childhood than others. Um, so take my parents, for example. My my dad remembers very little of his childhood. My The, the joke in my family when we were growing up was always that any story of my dad's from his childhood was from when he was eight or nine because that's like all he remembers from his childhood. <laughs> Whereas my mom is the complete opposite. She remembers, she could literally name the first and last name of every kid in her first grade class. Wow. It's incredible. Most people are somewhere in the middle yeah. of that range. Um, I'm more on my mom's end of the range, but certainly not at that level. Um, so I had a wonderful childhood and you know, climbing trees and sliding down hills and doing a lot of art. And yeah, I remember a lot of it as being really lovely. But I also remember a lot of just anxieties and fears and worries and and their kid worries. And that doesn't make them any less real. Um, and I think that's a really important dynamic of the deception artist as well, that because we're seeing the world from Ivy's point of view, we are privy to her concerns and worries. And since the book is written for adults, sometimes we as the adult reader will see what's going on and think that the situation is um, maybe not quite trivial, but, you know, we think, oh, Ivy, you know, you don't need to worry about this. But then the reverse is also true, that sometimes Ivy is um, happily oblivious and we as the adult reader think, actually, this could really turn out badly. So we we have that worry for her. Um, but I think part of childhood and being a kid, which I hope I've captured in this book, is sort of the that sense of powerlessness that kids are kind of at the mercy of whatever's going on in the world around them with their their parents and um and that can be um I guess sort of scary and um they don't necessarily they don't understand all of what's going on there's a lot that they don't understand and um I think there's a lot of real beauty and joy to childhood but that's tempered with that kind of powerlessness and uncertainty. Um, so I just kind of wanted to, since I, I happen to be one of those people like my mom who remembers these <laughs> more nuanced things, I wanted to kind of share that element with people that maybe um, have forgotten or or who remember it too, to kind of validate it. Like, hey, childhood is, is hard, you know? Um, Kids don't have to pay bills or go to work, but they've got they've got their struggles too, and those are valid struggles. I like the end. I don't want to ruin the end for anybody, <laughs> but the last couple paragraphs, I really like Ivy's uh, voice, mm. um, her declarations, and like those last few paragraphs. I think that's great. Thank you. Well, let's shift gears. I want to go to something completely different than the deception artist. My Love Ninja. 
<laughs> which is a new project of yours, right? It is brand new. Um, so what is My Love Ninja? So My Love Ninja is my new business that um, my partner Tyler and I just launched last month. So it's very new. And it is um, an OkCupid profile makeover service. So basically we rewrite people's profiles on OkCupid to help them put their best foot forward and find love. Okay. And what made you want to create this? Um, Well, I I have been dating online for... um, a long time. <laughs> I found my past several boyfriends online and, um, including Tyler. And, um, so I know a lot about the process and I just find it fascinating just kind of how we put ourselves out there in just a few paragraphs and a few photos and how, um, people actually meet each other and connect and find love or not <laughs> based on that. And, so I've always put, um, each time a relationship ended and I got back online and was ready to date again, I would really, you know, do some soul searching about, you know, who am I, what am I looking for in a partner and all those really important things for, um, you know, finding somebody and I'd rework my profile. So I'd reworked it and reworked it. So I'd gotten pretty good at this profile editing thing. Um, last May, I was in D.C. visiting friends, and a friend of mine was, I guess, complaining about her OkCupid profile. She said it just wasn't, she knew that it wasn't right, but she wasn't sure what to do with it. And so I said, well, can I have a look? She's like, yeah, please, yes. So um, I started rewriting it, and she loved what I did and she, uh, she loved the new person you created. Well, it's her. Yeah. And, and I love, I you love help. her so much. She's my friend Carissa. And it's just, to me, it was so obvious. Like she's, she's so much more amazing than how she described herself. There was things that she had said that were totally selling herself short. And then there was other parts of who she is, which are amazing which she had totally overlooked in the profile. And these are two really common mistakes that the people do. So it's much easier, I think, being on the outside and being able to sort of see, hey, you've, you haven't said anything about what you're looking for in a boyfriend or girlfriend. Or this thing you've said here, that, that could be really off-putting. And you know, if it's not a big part of who you are, maybe don't even say it. So... She loved what I had done with the profile. And she said, you should do this professionally. And I said, oh, Carissa, ha, ha, ha. She's like, no, seriously. So that kind of planted the seed. And I, I just got really excited about, wow, what would this look like as a business? And I thought, well, I really want it to be um, personal because um, a lot of the services out there, because this, this exists as a thing, which I didn't realize before uh, <clears throat> that trip to D.C., most of the other services like this where they do profile makeovers, there's no conversation. You just send off your profile to someone and they send you back an edited version. Mm. And 
maybe they'll make it better. Maybe not. Um, but I thought, wow, that's, that's really impersonal. And also that means they can only, um, it's like almost like making, you're trying, if you've got, you're trying to make a meal out of, um, whatever's left in your fridge. But what if what's in your fridge is like, you know, just sort of some moldy cheese and the kind of cheese that shouldn't be moldy Mm -hmm. and like, you know, like a little chunk of tomato and, you know, some stale bread. Like it's, (laughs) even if you're the best cook in the world, there's not much you can do with that if that's what you're starting with. Um, so instead what, what I, what we do with my love ninja is we have an actual conversation with each of our clients. Um, if they're local, we'll have coffee with them. Uh, if they're anywhere else in the world, then we'll have a phone call or Skype call. And that's our opportunity to kind of get to know who they are as a person and to dig a little deeper instead of just having a list of hobbies and interests to really find out, well, you know, why do you like these things? What is it about you that, you know, loves, you know, hiking or dancing or whatever it is? Um, what does that really, you know, why does that get you going? And I think in the why, um, we can learn a lot about people. So, um, and, and I love that process of really uncovering what someone's all about and, and asking them questions that maybe they haven't thought about before. Um, some people think a lot about what they're looking for in a partner and some people really don't. They're like, I want them to be hot, (laughs) (laughs) which, you know, is cool, but it's like, let's stick a little deeper. You know what, what else? (laughs) So do you write all of the, or I guess help write the girls, girl Um, clients and your partner does the the guys? It's up to them. I mean, uh, we, we work on some of them collaboratively. Um, if, if a client especially wants to work with one of us or the other, that's fine. Um, I mean, sometimes the reverse might be true that um, a woman might want to work with Tyler because um, he can see things from a guy's perspective, you know, if, mm-hmm. if she's straight and is trying to attract a guy. Um, but, um, but yeah, we work on a lot of it collaboratively, which is fun. I, I love having this project with Tyler. It's so much fun because... Yeah. Um, especially because we met on OkCupid. He had a great profile. He totally won me over with his profile. Uh, but yeah, he he will pick up on different things than I will. You know, when we're looking at, at a prospective client's profile, there's um, the things that jump out at me and the things that he notices. And sometimes those overlap and sometimes we'll each notice things the other person didn't, which is really fun. So I'm curious... Like, how much do you charge for this? Is this something I can ask you? That's a great question. So we've got three different packages. So depending on what people's needs are um, and how much they're, you know, happy to spend. Um, So the, uh, because we're called My Love Ninja, the packages have ninja names. So the the bronze ninja is, um, so the, um, the bronze ninja is $125. Uh, silver ninja is 175 and the gold ninja is 250 um so it's uh, a small price to pay to fall in love (laughs) right definitely well i guess the way we look at it um we by betting by putting your best foot forward 
and representing yourself in a way that's truly you and really shows off how awesome you are, you're saving a lot of money because you don't have to go on as many bad dates with people that aren't a good fit. So let's talk about some of your favorite spots in the Bay Area. Let's start with your neighborhood. Where do you live? So I just moved to Oakland, gone to the other side. Um, Oakland's a cool spot. <laughs> I love it. How I'm long really have you been over it. there? Um, just since the fall. So it's just been a few months. Um, and yeah, I I loved living in San Francisco. I was living in the Lower Haight Um and yeah, it's everything, you know, I love being able to walk everywhere. Um, and, uh, I was right by DeBose Park, which was really fun. Nice. It was good. Um, but my partner Tyler and I wanted to move in together and, um, we ended up in Oakland and I really love it there too. It's um, it's good. I'm still getting to know it. I'm certainly no expert. <laughs> um, much more familiar with the city at this point, but I'm enjoying that process of, you know, getting to know my new East Bay stomping grounds. Okay, so you just moved to Oakland. You're still getting to know that area. Let's talk about the Lower Eight then. We'll pick that as your recent neighborhood Sounds in San good. Francisco. <laughs> um, what are your three favorite? things to do or places to go in the lower height? Um, well, I just love how compact it is. There's so many different cafes and bars and restaurants and fun shops. And um, and it's just, yeah, uh, the end Muni is right there and all these bus lines. It just feels like really accessible. You could just, there's so much of what, I loved about San Francisco right there. And you can also easily get to other areas. Um, but let's see. I really loved um, going to DeBose Park and sitting on the hill there and watching the dogs, preferably with um, a big scoop of ice cream from Three Twins up the road. Okay. I know where Three Twins is. Yeah. So is this, uh, is it a pretty big dog? Like centric park. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's a big park with, so part of it is dog central. And then there's other areas that are, um, for just people or people and dogs. And there's a playground as well. Okay. It's nice. There's sunny parts, the shady parts. Um, and if you go to the very top of the hill, kind of above the park, then, um, there's a view of, of the East Bay and all the way out to Mount Diablo. You've got a really good view out there. Oh, nice. Yeah. I haven't been up there. Yeah. Okay. It's pretty. There's so many amazing views in San Francisco. It's something I, I really love about this city. It's just, um, um, especially like the sort of urban hiking is really fun. Um, I do that more than real hiking. <laughs> if I, if I want to go like on a long like hike or walk, I mean, I'll do like four or five miles just mm. through the city. And I yeah. love that. Yeah. And you get these wild places in the city too, which just blows me away. Um, I love uh, Bernal Hill. I think it's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's just, it's kind of bizarre. You just have this grassy hill. that's just kind of plunked down in the middle of all these neighborhoods. Okay. So what else in the lower height? 
Can you give me a few more spots? Um, I love Knock Knock. Um, it's this crazy bar that looks like it's thing out of Alice in Wonderland. Uh, it's kind of this weird cave, and they've got like stalactites, and it's uh, and they've got sake. It's fun. Um, yeah, totally unpretentious, kind of weird-looking neighborhood bar. So that's that's great. I don't think I've been there. It's, you'd know it if you were there. It's so weird. Really, I love it. Yeah, okay. it's it's fun. Um, they've kind of got. I don't know how to describe it, but it's just sort of, it's, it's like a cave from Alice in Wonderland basically. Okay. No, I have it, been in there then. Okay. And I, yeah. <laughs> so it's knock, knock, N-O-C, N-O-C. Uh-huh. Okay. That's yeah, right. I've been there. Yeah. I've been in there. Yeah. Yeah. I, that, that, the way you described it, uh, I, know, I, I remember it all. I'm so. glad I've, uh, yeah. I've jolted your memory. <laughs> yeah. That place is super fun. Um, uh, I really like, there's, um, this vegetarian sandwich place called Love and Hate Deli, which um, has just these amazing sandwiches for cheap. And that's another good um, uh, stop before going to DeVos Park to pick up sandwiches. What about, so this is going to be a tough one. Okay. Everyone has a hard time with this, but I want to know your three favorite restaurants in San Francisco. Oh, I'm gonna so make. Hard. I'm gonna make you narrow it down. Okay, um, I really like. Uh, well, I guess continuing with the vegetarian theme, um, as I am a pescatarian, so I eat fish but not other meats. So I dig the the veggie food. Um, I really love herbivore. Um, no, it is never been there. So there's two locations. There's one on Divis and there's one on Valencia, and. Yeah, consistently good. Pretty big menu, like um, some kind of Asian fusion, some kind of uh, you know American comfort food, and it's all um, it's all vegetarian, if not vegan. I'm not sure. Anyway, it's delicious, and I always have um, a good time there. Um, yeah, I think I really I appreciate delicious food that's. Um, it's more on the healthy side of things and reasonably priced. And I also really value a good atmosphere in a restaurant. Um, I, I love to cook. I think I'm a pretty good cook. So if I'm going to go out to eat, I want to feel like I'm getting something more than what I could just do for myself. Right. Um, I also really like Boogaloo's, which is also on Valencia. Boogaloo's. It's I haven't heard of that pretty place. much. I think a brunch place, like a breakfast brunch place. And, um, yeah, really popular. They've got, you know, like a lot of people, like they've got lines outside at the weekend of the clipboard. You've got to sign in sort of thing. Uh, Can you do dinner there as well? No. No, so it's strictly brunch. I think it's just brunch. Um, But for people with flexible schedules, it's really cool to go there during the week. And, yeah, it's kind of a diner sort of setup. Yeah. with some booth seating and they've got uh, old like um, album covers on the walls with like Boogaloo in the name. So all the like Boogaloo albums. It's kind of bizarre. Cool. The food's delicious. Okay. You gave me two. Okay. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold you to that three, Faye. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, okay, my third restaurant choice would be Straw, which is on Octavia. Um, oh, that's the that's another breakfast place, right? Octavia and Hayes. Yeah, is that where yeah, it's right around there. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, so it's kind of like carnival themed, right? Um, and they've got one of those. Uh, called no i'm thinking of stacks okay so i have it wrong okay yeah no this is this is much funkier okay um okay so this, it's octavia i could look it up but anyway it's it's closer to market okay um but it's called straw and it's carnival themed and the wait staff are always super friendly and it's just kind of quirky i like quirky places and they've got um I think it's like a um like a tilt a whirl i forget what it's called but they've got one of these like old kind of rounded metal rides it doesn't actually work it's just sort of booth seating but you can like actually sit inside this ride if you're lucky there's only one okay otherwise you're just sitting you know in a chair Excellent. but it's still good even if you're sitting in a chair well there's three new spots for me there you go <laughs> i have not been to i'll have to go check out that was hard though <laughs> All right, what about your three favorite places to get a drink in San Francisco? Okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to Knock Knock again because okay. that's awesome. Um, actually, there's so many good bars just in the lower height and kind of just right around that area within an easy walk of my old place. Um, I, I've i got these friends that um, I meet up with about once a month for, for drinks and we kind of make a point to go to a different place each time and... I think we did repeat one time, which felt like we were failing San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, just staying within a, f- a few block radius. Uh, so many good places. So I also really like um, The Residence, which is on 14th at Church. And it kind of looks like this decadent old living room, hmm. like velvet couch kind of thing. And they show old black and white movies with the sound off. Oh, cool. Yeah. So that place is great. There's like a regular that goes with his dog and the dog sits up on the bar stool. Hmm. It's just really fun. <laughs> All right. um, I've had a few um, events there. And then I also really like Blackbird, which is on market at church. It's just like a little further down. Um, and they have great cocktails and just kind of a cool decor. Um the cocktail menu, like it's written on the wall. I think it's like a like a blackboard wall and it's just really extensive and kind of overwhelming for me anyway. So I like just to talk to the bartenders and say, hey, I don't really know what I want, but I like things that are like this, but not that, but not this, but I like these sorts of flavors. And they're like, oh yeah, you need a blah, blah, blah. And they make one for me and it's always exactly what I need. So nice. that place is fun. That's two more new places for me to check out. Excellent. Thanks for that. <laughs> what about... I see why you're doing this. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to build my list. <laughs> Tell me about a place you went to recently for the first time that you really enjoyed. Um, so I recently discovered this little Senegalese restaurant, which is also a bar and a club called Little Baobab. And it's in the Mission down some side street off of Mission Street and um, I had no idea it was there and I was hungry and I was with Tyler and we were kind of we decided not to look on Yelp just to be 
badasses and just wander and find something, which I think can be so much more satisfying. I mean, I love Yelp and it's it's good when you're in a hurry and need to just actually find something. But I thought, let's just wander. There's so many good restaurants around here. And the food was excellent. And I remember um, the woman who served us just had the biggest smile. She was just so genuine. And um, this young Senegalese woman. And I think we were trying to decide between a few different dishes. And she gave this great recommendation. And yeah, it just felt so good being there. And they had these cool paintings on the wall. And I liked the music. And it was all the more rewarding because we had found it. We hadn't just looked it up with our phones. We actually just discovered it. Yeah, that was that was good. Yeah, that is a cool place. I've been there. And um, Bonnie from a few episodes ago, that's the place she named. Really? That's the new place she'd been to recently. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. Well, people are discovering it. How yeah, did you find it? Yeah, but it's it? been there for a while, right? I've been there... I went there like oh, yeah, I, I don't think it's new. This, yeah. I don't think it's new. I just I uh, <laughs> had some friends take me there like okay. my, one of my first years that I was living here and um like found it that way. So it is a really cool spot. So what about if you had to if you ever had to move away? Oh, I know so I, I, I know you've done. <laughs> I know you've done, but you're back. It sounds like you're loving it here. If if you had to move away from the Bay Area, how would you spend your last day? I think I sometimes overschedule myself. So I think for my last day, I'd want to just do less than, I, I don't want to create some sort of, I'd probably be very stressed <laughs> from moving and sad to be um, leaving my friends and family. Um, so yeah, I think I would love to invite anyone who wanted to come with me on a really nice hike through Redwood Regional Park in the East Bay. And um, sort of say goodbye to the Redwood trees and, um, you know, just have have some nice quality time with, with some friends and family on the hike. And then um, I guess have a really delicious meal somewhere I don't know where that would be I think um it'd probably either be sushi or burritos since those are two things that are inferior mm-hmm. <laughs> inferior elsewhere but I'm not sure which restaurant it'd be I'd have to um I'd have to decide probably after the hike I'd be so hungry I'd just eat anything but <laughs> but yeah I think definitely spending time outside and hiking with with people that I care about I think that's how I'd want to spend my last day. I really enjoyed talking with Fayette. She's an awesome person that's already done so many interesting things in her life. And uh, I really liked reading her book as well. Um, Like I said, it was just published in the U.S. on March 17th by Roaring Forties Press. Uh, which is a publishing company in Berkeley. Uh, So you should be able to find her book in your local bookstore, um, or you can definitely get it on Amazon. Um, If you want to learn more about Fayette, check out her website. It's FayetteFoxAuthor.com. And you can also read more about Fayette on the San Francisco People website. That's www.sfpeoplepodcast.com. 
From here, you can get a recap of the show and links to everything that Fayette and I talked about. You can also follow the show on Twitter at SF People Podcast or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Podcast. If you have a guest in mind for a future show, please email me. It's frank at sfpeoplepodcast.com. We'll be back in a few weeks. I'm Frank Garza for San Francisco People.